There was a serial killer outside the ghost town of Elizabethtown, New Mexico, who preyed on weary travelers along the Taos Trail. Come now as we explore the story of Elizabethtown and its infamous serial killer, Charles Kennedy. Hello and welcome to another Midwest Ghost Town podcast. My name is Dan Klein. I'm your host, your history enthusiast, and your ghost town and abandoned history adventurer. And like we say on this channel, let's keep history alive. One way we can certainly do that is by talking about it and making this podcast, and of course, videos as well. So in this episode, we dive into dark and twisted tale of a madman and a serial killer, Charles Kennedy, who was believed to have murdered 15 to 100 men before he was caught, luring them into his home for a night's rest and a warm meal as they traveled along the Taos Trail. And it was easy picking for Charles, especially as the traffic began to increase in 1866 around Elizabethtown due to the discovery of gold. The locals knew it as E-Town and became New Mexico's first incorporated town, a real-life booming mining town with the discovery of gold. As it sat in the Moreno Valley along the Baldy Mountain, what once started out as a small town in the valley now boomed to over 7,000 residents, a fast-paced, wild mining town. But nobody was aware of the wildness brewing just outside of E-Town. But rumors were spreading about mysterious disappearances occurring around the Taos Trail. And in 1871, there was one disappearance that alerted the authorities. A popular citizen from Taos had completely disappeared on his way to E-Town. Authorities were alerted and they finally discovered his belongings, along with his horse and mules, all at Kennedy's property. When Charles was confronted, he shared that he found the animals wandering around and assumed they had been attacked by Apaches. Completely believable. But there were a few questions that kept nagging at the investigators. Number one, why would the Apaches attack a person and not take their stuff? Number two, especially the case for the mules. Apaches loved mule meat. Why would they leave the mules? It made no sense. But a couple points. The investigators didn't have anything else to go on and so returned back to Taos and Charles Kennedy was safe. But that was all the change. The fall of 1871 brought more travelers as usual. Charles Kennedy was getting used to the increased amounts of miners traveling the path near his home out in the Moreno Valley. The latest traveler stopped and as nightfall was quickly approaching came upon the Kennedy homestead he was concerned over Indians around the trail and heard stories where others were robbed and often killed. Approaching Charles Kennedy offered him a bed and a warm meal. As he sat at the table eating his meal with the family, he thought it odd that the small Indian boy hovered around, taking interest in him and listening intently to their discussion. He noticed that his wife had served him but stayed out of the main room as much as possible as he ate. And there was this odd smell in the air like rotting meat. Possibly that animal caught beneath the floorboards, but as he continued to eat, he started to question Charles about any Apaches in the area. And this is when Charles' nine-year-old son spoke up. Can't you smell the one Papa put under the floor? Almost instantaneously, Kennedy's temper flared, and grabbing his gun, shot the visitor point blank, killing him instantly. His son began to cry as he grabbed him around the neck, pulling him near 
before throwing him against the fireplace and crushing his skull with a dull thud. It all happened fast. Now with both the visitor bleeding out from his bullet wound and his son dead from a head wound, but Kennedy didn't hesitate. He grabbed the stranger from his chair, hoisted him above his shoulders, making his way to the cellar. His wife, Rosa, noticing the dead body with little emotion, as it wasn't the first time she had witnessed Charles' killing. But as he made his way back and grabbed their dead son to throw him in the cellar as well, she began to scream hysterically. Slamming the door shut, he came back at his screaming wife, hit her across the face, and pushed her back into the house, locking the door behind him to stop her escape. He had grown tired of her and wanted to kill her as well, but first he needed to gather himself. Sitting at the table, with blood stains on both the fireplace and the floor, he opened a bottle of whiskey and began to drink. Until he could no longer remain upright, and falling over from his chair, he fell to the ground, passed out drunk. Rosa saw her chance to escape when Charles passed out cold. She attempted to get his key, but she couldn't get the key from underneath his heavy body. But it didn't take long for her to assess the situation and find plan B, the fireplace. Climbing the fireplace and using the climbing skills she developed as a kid, she pressed her hands and feet against the walls of the chimney and climbed her way out, making her way out of the house and fleeing to nearby Elizabethtown. As Rosa came into town, she was frantic with fear. She was half frozen from the New Mexico night air, crying, bleeding, and blabbering nonstop. She crashed through the doors of the local saloon where the characters of Clay Allison and Davy Crockett's nephew, David Crockett, were at the bar having drinks. Turning around, they took a notice of Rosa, drank their last swallow, turned and headed over to the young frantic mute woman, picked her up, and had her stand on the chair to tell her story. We have more to this story as Charles Kennedy's secret is exposed and a New Mexico serial killer is revealed right after this. Hi there, Dan Klein here with Midwest Ghost Town. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We love and appreciate fans like yourself who stop by, take time and download, listen, give us likes, or drop us comments. We love discussing history and having a community around us that love it too. If you have a moment and haven't reached out, we'd love to hear from you. Consider subscribing, but if not, we consider ourselves lucky just to have you here. Thanks again, and let's keep history alive. Clay Allison was no stranger to the Wild West. He was around it his entire life, and hearing grizzling tales of killing and murder was nothing new. He was a hard drinker, tough rancher, former Confederate soldier with a quick temper and a gunfighter mentality. He had a fast trigger finger, and drunken rages were all part of the territory. He wasn't known as a Wild West gunfighter, but he had done enough damage in his time to be considered an outlaw. But in this case, he listened to Rosa's story with a slow, boiling rage. Rosa went on to give horrifying details about other visitors stopping at the house and Charles killing them in cold blood, oftentimes burning their bodies and discarding the bones on their property, and giving more details about where the bones of 20 men were buried and could be found. Allison and Crockett quickly formed a posse and headed for Kennedy's cabin. When they arrived, they had expected a fight, but without incident, busted through the cabin door, finding Kennedy still recovering from his drunken episode. They arrested him and began to search the premises. What they found backed Rosa's claims, 
They found a partially charred body and remains of a human bone in the fireplace. Two skeletons under the house and another skeleton near the house, but outside. And the bodies of both his recent victims and his son in the cellar. They dragged Kennedy back to E-Town where he had a quick makeshift murder trial. A witness came forward, testified that they had seen Kennedy shoot one of the travelers. But it was a mistrust between the law and past judges that delayed the overall pending of the court. And it was determined later that Kennedy's verdict would need to wait. Rumors began to spread about Kennedy buying his freedom through his lawyer, and it didn't take long before vigilante law took over. Allison and his organized mob broke into the jail, kidnapped Kennedy with a tied noose around his neck, and drug him up and down Main Street, killing him of a broken neck. The mob proceeded to behead Kennedy and took his head as a warning to other outlaws, murderers, and criminals. The rest of his body was refused burial into the local cemetery and was later buried outside the cemetery boundaries, ending the tale of the E-Town serial killer. Charles Kennedy is believed to have murdered over 15 men. He had the motive of robbery and was rumored to have buried his stolen money to avoid suspicion. Possibly the buried treasure is somewhere around his old cabin ground, or even deeper along the old Tau Trail. Regardless, the strange and gruesome story of Charles Kennedy and his haunting serial killings paint a picture of the violent nature of the time period surrounding a ghost town. If ghost towns could talk. Let's take a few minutes and unpackage the story. We have a ghost town. We have a serial killer. And the serial killer is exposed. He's captured. He's jailed. He's tried. And he's ultimately killed by the hands of a vigilante justice mob. This storyline somewhat follows a similar fashion with another Midwest serial killer story. Less of a ghost town story and more of an abandoned story. With the case of the Bloody Benders. A family of serial killers in Labette, Kansas. From May 1871 to December 1872. Travelers would stay at the infamous family inn and while being distracted at the table would be hit in the head by a hammer with their throats being cut to finish the job. The similarity of travelers being wooed off the trail and inside to a waiting trap seemed eerily similar. Of course, like I just mentioned though, no ghost town on this one, but there is a mound on the old land where the old bender cabin used to stand. The property has been purchased with the owner having hopes of an archaeological work done on the property, so who knows what else can be found or learned. The one thing that can be certain with ghost towns and abandoned places is that they can be remote. They can be, well, for lack of a better word, forgotten. And in reality, that's precisely what someone like a serial killer would want. What a perfect scenario in place to dump a body. There were countless stories of body dumping grounds, stories along the killing fields in Texas, along the interstates, parks, lakes, rivers, and yes, ghost towns. We have another ghost town story linked with a serial killer, this time a little further north into the state of Wyoming, right after this. Quick question for you. Are you hoping to hear a specific story on the podcast? I'd love to know about it. Dan Klein here with Midwest Ghost Town. And every day, I have conversations with people just like you. And we get in all sorts of conversations, whether it takes us down the path of ghost towns and abandoned places or other unique 
subjects in history. If you have a particular story you would like to hear, or if you have a unique story or topic, I'd love to hear about it. You can drop me a line in the comments on either YouTube or Spotify. You can reach out to our email, midwestghosttown at gmail.com, or on our Twitter page, which goes by the same name, Midwest Ghost Town. Looking forward to hearing from you. Let's keep history alive. The next story takes us from the southwest corner down in the state of New Mexico all the way up to the mountain region up north in Wyoming. And that's one unique thing about Midwest Ghost Town. We cover all ghost towns, stories and surrounding them, and a lot of times that might just take us out of the 12 to 13 Midwest states, like it does in this case. Wyoming is one of those peaceful states where the mountain country starts to take shape whether it's through Bighorn Country up by Sheridan, or whether it's further west around the regions of Yellowstone or the Tetons. And you get a sense of this peaceful beauty when surrounded by the beauty of these places, including within some of the ghost towns and abandoned places in the region. Which is why it's so shocking when you encounter a story of a serial killer. She is known as Wyoming's first and worst serial killer. And that's right, you heard me right. I said she. The setting for the story finds herself in the ghost town of South Pass, Wyoming. South Pass was no different than any other mining town going up across the mountain regions in the United States. Boom towns drawing thousands of miners across the nation in days of gold fixation. A prospector's dream. Of course, South Pass was another popular destination, especially for settlers traveling the Oregon Trail westward. In 1860, it was busy with a hotel, blacksmith shop, and other businesses catering to the mining community. And like any ordinary town, the local inn was another popular business. And South Pass had a one-of-a-kind, small inn, built when the Bartlett family moved to town in 1868. And it was a good business venture for the family. As many travelers would stop in South Pass, needed a place to stay, and the small inn was perfect. Of course, the biggest problem was the rodent issue that naturally occurred in the end. So naturally, the Bartlett's had quantities of arsenic on hand, but it wasn't used on the rodents. Young Polly Bartlett, later known as the murderess of Slaughterhouse Gulch, became obsessed with using the poison and even more obsessed in using it on the male guests, mostly miners seeking their fortune who would stay in the inn. The story goes that her first victim was a young man named Louis Nichols. She knew, of course, that he had gold and money in his possession, so it made sense for Dolly just to use a little and steal the money. But her greed overcame her, and she killed young Nichols. Soon, it became two, three, four, and the vanishing of guests began to build. And then, it was the story of Tim Flaherty. Flaherty came from a collection agency in Nebraska, and seeking a place to rest and gather his strength, he drew in for the night and asked Polly to make a mistake. Being a guest at the inn gave him plenty of chances to stay in luxury in a mining town, and this was another reason he stayed. A nice, hot meal. Of course, Flaherty was more than willing to pay Dolly for her cooking troubles and offered her a $10 bill. Tim Flaherty was never seen again. 
And that's the funny thing. Because in the now ghost town of South Pass, because the vanishing acts continued with the disappearance of Edmund Ford, but finally the boldness of Polly caught up with her. A young man by the name of Barney Fortune made a stay at the inn. However, when the same occurrence happened again and Barney turned up missing, it drew the attention of others and the mystery of other vanishing miners started to build a question of possible foul play, which led to the hiring of the Pinkerton Agency. And I think I'm going to stop here for a moment and make note of the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons was a private detective agency established around 1850, but it was another profile case that really gathered my attention. And that was the story of Jesse James. Story after story of Jesse James brings up the clash between robbery and detective agency, mainly the Pinkertons, who were later called to investigate and bring a close to the Jesse James gang. And it was much larger than that. They had high-profile cases with the Reno gang, the Wild Bunch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the Younger Brothers. In addition to that detective work, they were paid large sums of money to be the money transporters between town to town. In essence, minus the money transporting, of course, they were like the FBI. And now, speeding back to the story, the miners are disappearing. Polly is poisoning them left and right, and now the Pinkerton Agency is brought in. It didn't take long as they were investigating to come to the conclusion that they were dealing with the Bartlett's as murderers. Polly as a serial killer and her own father covering up her crimes. A $13,000 reward was put on their heads. Mr. Bartlett found himself in a shootout and killed, and Polly apprehended and sent off to jail to be held in Atlantic City, Wyoming. And this is where the nightmare began. Word got back to Barney Fortune's friend that all signs pointed towards Polly Bartlett as a mass murderer and killer of Barney himself. As she waited trial, Fortune's friend shot her through the jail window. Not long after her death, investigators began their search in and around the inn, searching for any clues that could lead them to the missing men. Their search led them to a corral on the Bartlett's property, and this is where they discovered the bodies of 22 young men, all killed from arsenic poisoning. By the hands of Wyoming's worst, the murderous of Slaughterhouse Gulch. Ghost towns, abandoned places, serial killers, vigilante justice, secret burial grounds in isolated regions, deserts, lakes, forests, and streams. They all spell out different stories. But sometimes, sometimes, you find a link between the two. Sometimes, it's that story that makes you ponder history a bit more. Curiosity strikes. What's fact? What's fiction? What's the truth? And what's urban legend? All in all, it's a delicate balancing act. But like we say here, it's good for educational discussion. Let's keep history alive. This is... Midwest Ghost Town.